0: Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast, where host Dr. Kirby Ross Plock speaks with experts on many topics relevant in the ultra high net worth family wealth management space. Kirby is author of several books, including The Complete Family Office Handbook, and shares her expertise consulting with families and family offices. Kirby is also the founder of Tamarind Learning, an online wealth education platform that develops practical foundational learning programs for beneficiaries to help them prepare for responsible stewardship of wealth.
1: Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirby Rosblock, and I'm so excited because today we have Ethan Penner with us, who is an incredible real estate guru. He's built all kinds of businesses and is a maverick in the real estate space. He is the founder of Mosaic uh, as well as a managing partner and has had an incredible career as a pioneer in the field of real estate, really 30 years of um, working in the space and is credited with uh, creating the commercial mortgage-backed securities market, which is a pretty um, incredible accomplishment because that obviously was a a, a major uh, influence into the whole real estate finance space. So Ethan, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: That's a pleasure to be with you, Kirby. Thank you.
1: So I had the wonderful experience of hearing Ethan speak um, a few months back. He was a keynote speaker at an incredible real estate conference being held. And I was so taken with his passion and his zest and his um, vision. And so I was so thrilled to have him join us on the podcast today because he's done something pretty miraculous. Not most people go from finance and investing and in real estate to now an author. So congratulations on your new book. I'd love to hear more about it. So tell us what inspired you to write Greatness as a Choice?
0: Well, it's a good question. I um, you know, Kirby, I've always, I don't know, from the time I was a young kid, being introduced to books by my mother, especially, uh, have been kind of a philosophical person, you know, looking at the world and trying to understand the world and then trying to find my way within that understanding, right? And, and so even in my career on Wall Street, Uh, and creating the CMBS market and starting off as a as a bond trader in the mortgage-backed securities area to being a real estate investor. I've always been someone who looks at the big world first uh, and try to figure out where the big world is and where it's heading and then try to position myself accordingly. And I think that uh, that's served me very well. So it's kind of always been philosopher first or observer first. And and naturally, uh, the book is in the end a philosophy book. But I think the book is a book that um, will be seen by people as invest who are investors and business people as a very helpful book in understanding how to see the world and frame the world to make good decisions on the investment and business front as well. I think that you know there's a chapter in the book that we've spoken about called intersections. And I, I think uh, I also teach, and so I've been teaching for about nine years at graduate business school. And um, and people ask me, well, what do you teach? And I, I teach, I call it life according to Ethan, but really it's the intersection of everything, right? So I don't teach um, finance or real estate in isolation. I my classes really teach kind of exploring the intersection of how everything affects those businesses, right? How, and how they interact with each other. And, and I think that's a very important, so I have a a chapter All my chapters are quite short uh, by design. So I've 69 chapters that are one to three pages long and that are pretty independent of each other. And I think that that serves the reader very well, especially in today's very busy world where, you know, people don't really have a lot of time to read. But the intersections, uh, the way I see the world kind of at intersections, um, you know, is how I've lived my life. Now, getting to the specific story of the book, I was sitting um, at my breakfast table uh, and it was 10 days before Christmas in 2000, which was a COVID, as you know, Christmas. And my daughter, who was then a high school student, a senior doing, you know, mostly online because of COVID was having breakfast with breakfast with me. And she asked me what I was going to buy my uh, brother-in-law and his family who were coming for Christmas. And I I just thought, you know, somehow I said, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to give them a the book. And she laughed and said, well, you know, it's 10 days before Christmas. When are you going to write the book? And I said, literally right now. And I wrote what became the first draft of this book at that table in about four hours. And four hours later, she came back for lunch And I said, I'm done. And she said, what are you talking about? And I had finished about 100 pages and about 65 short chapters with each one of them, kind of my life ideas or observations. And that book, the reason I was able to do it like that, though, is because, and this is probably an idea worth sharing specifically with your audience, although I think it's relevant to everybody. Somehow I came up with this idea, Kirby, that it would be really great. Uh, to have a fair family heirloom that was passed down generationally, that reflected ideology, ideas, and observations of a patriarch. I, I dream that I could have that from some uh, ancestor of mine. And if I did, it would be my most treasured possession. And so I've always thought, well, why, if I would treasure it, why don't I just create it for my descendants, right? And hope that my kids pass it along and So I've always had this notion of as a father, creating some version of this kind of a book for my own descendants. Mm -hmm. And so having, and I took notes, and I've always been like a note taker in the notes section of my iPhone, whenever I have ideas or observations, I would put them there. So being able to reference that facilitated me writing that first draft so easily. Then I circulated that book, I ended up, going to a printer and I wanted to print 10 copies initially and the printer would only print runs of a hundred minimally. So I had many more copies than I had really needed. And I started giving them away. And then I started getting feedback from people, people who weren't even really close to me or some that I never had met before. And the feedback was incredible. You know, this book that I had thought would be a family heirloom at best, was now a book that I saw as having value for other people in the world. And I realized, so then I spoke to a a literary agent that a friend of mine introduced me to, and he said, well, nobody would buy the book as it is in the format, you know, it was was really a personal first draft family book. And uh, I sat on it for about a year. And I'm gonna share one story just because I think it's important in understanding what the book can be in his best form. There was a guy who I had been introduced to by a mutual friend who was living in the Middle East, uh, in the Gulf States, uh, in the UAE. And he was uh, running a big real estate investment business there. He was a U.S. guy who had moved over there with his family. And uh, he got the book, friend of a friend. I didn't know him at all. And we started talking across the world and he said to me, you know, because of my hours and I, you know, I'm not home that often, but I have a 12 year old son. I've read your book and I love your book, but I love it so much that I now keep it on the nightstand of my 12 year old son. And every night that I do get to put him to bed, we read a chapter of your book together and spend 15 minutes discussing it. And I thought that's the best, that's the dream, dream thing for me, you know, like the ability to be influencing and inspiring uh, values communication between a father and a son through the lens of my book uh I mean what's better than that right what's what's a bigger contribution that one can hope to make with a book like this and so that inspired me to think that I have something that may be valuable beyond just a family heirloom for my family and I took about a year and I kind of just Modeled on how i'm gonna rewrite the book or reposition the book to make it something that someone who didn't know me would buy and uh i rewrote it about a year later that version found its way through a friend to a literary agent who gave it to the wiley publishing house who then kind of cold called me and said we got your book and we want to send you a contract and sign you and i was thrilled and uh and then about six months of editorial negotiations with their editor resulted in the final version, which I'm very proud of and very excited about.
1: Well, I'll give a shout out for Wiley because they're my publisher too. And um, I think that's uh, just a great um, acknowledgement of sort of the body and breadth of this work, but also that you made it so accessible. And I think that's one thing I really appreciate because um, you connect, right, to the reader where they are. I mean, the fact that a father and a son, pretty young son too, 12, can connect on the themes of your book. I mean, the, the content is so relatable. And I think, you know, from your chapter on being human to, you know, what's your purpose? I think these are all key questions that maybe all of us ask ourselves, right? And at some point in our life, and I think it's just incredible that you were able to bring all this together into an ecosystem of stories that, you know, really represent, really reflects mankind and where we're at. Is there one chapter or one story that jumps out to you from the book that you're most proud of, or that you think really, um, when you wrote it down, you thought, oh, I am so glad I captured this moment.
0: Well, maybe I'll touch on two because you mentioned Be Human, which I I don't know that I would have thought of that one, but because you mentioned it, I can't not address it. And I think it's a good example. The Be Human chapter is representative of the book in a very important way. And that is to say that um, people don't, I think, really appreciate how important, um, well, we all have our our internal life philosophy that drives us. And I don't think people are fully aware that they're philosophers and that they have a life philosophy and that their life philosophy is alive and organic and is constantly being challenged and modified, even in a subconscious way, based on their walk about in life right what they experience what they see what they hear their successes and their failures and I think that um, I think that these foundational belief systems that we're not fully appreciative that we have are what both create our successes and also block our our you know create our failures block us and create our failures and i think that my book is a a way to kind of bring them to the forefront and to examine them and challenge them and uh and that's what it's about and i think that even the chapters that seem to be disconnected from even let's just say work or investing they are very connected right and i i, I think that um So the Be Human chapter really is about kind of finding, realizing that the the way the world is set up, so much of it is about the way the world is set up, so the way the world is set up, and, and I guess I would say a lot of time is spent fighting the way the world is set up rather than accepting that that's just the way it is. You know what I mean? Like we, gravity exists. We're not going to defy gravity. And so we might as well figure out a way to live with gravity. And I think there's so many other things about the world that are like gravity that we don't, don't particularly appreciate. So one of my observations that is a foundation of that chapter is that we are all in this world um, in our bodies and our bodies have this um, certain biological needs uh, the need for survival right we are um, very few people commit suicide for example because no matter how hard their life is the body itself is hardwired to fight to survive the body okay and one of the things I do in my book is separate this notion of the person from the body, right? There, the body has a purpose, but obviously like when, when I move my fingers, I'm not my fingers, there's me and I'm telling my fingers move and they're moving. So there's something other than the body that is me. And I think that's something people don't think about too much, but in the be human, um, it's derived from this observation that we are all here competing for the world's resources um to fulfill our needs our bodily needs which is food shelter you know security of what whatever survival and when we go out of our front doors into the world it's a competition for resources right and and competitions bring out the hard side of people a lot of times bring out the not what I'll call non-human side of people right we like to think of the human qualities as good qualities the generosity of spirit kindness um sharing all those beautiful traits that I think I mean when I say be human but that I think is often lost in the scrum of competition for resources and how many people do we know perhaps we've been that way ourselves where we can say a person wow that that guy or that woman they're so nice except in business in business they're really difficult you know or they're really tough and well we all know people like that and hopefully we're not like that you and i but um but we certainly all know people like that who you can be great friends with and they're wonderful friends as long as you're not competing for resources with them you're not in the scrum with them and i guess be human is about it's a call to remember that even in the heat of the competition for resources that the world places us in be human right that's an important balance to find right there's i know that in my career and i've had a very successful career thank god i've i'm proud that i've never lost the um lost myself right and myself is the the kind part the benevolent part the win win i i always look for win wins in every business dealing and honestly if a business dealing finds its way to me where i might win but the other person might lose because it's just not you know because i'm in a senior position maybe i'm making a loan i would rather not be in the deal than they know that I'm heading down a path that's likely to be confrontational and put me at odds with this person where one will win and one will lose. I don't enjoy that. I don't I don't think that's fun. and uh, And I think we could all be successful enough adhering to win-win commitments and being human, if you will, even in the face of the competition for resources that we often find ourselves in the midst of. So that's that chapter. And I like that chapter very much. Um, you asked me I I think I said I had another chapter that I do like very much and I think is um, an an interesting insight as well and I called the chapter duality and it's born out of this observation that um, so much of what we see in life uh, we can't really decide whether one extreme or the other extreme uh, answer is the correct answer. They are both; they could both be true. And it's a really weird phenomenon to think of two opposite or opposing perspectives both being true. But I give a few examples in the book and I'll, I'll give one or two here just to illustrate it. But take, for example, the notion that, well, we are human, right? You and I and everyone that will listen to this podcast. And we all know, the limitations that we face by being human. I mean, we're we're likely to kind of not ever do anything that really matters in the grand scheme of things. We're likely to, uh, well, we're 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 very fragile. We're very insignificant in the annals of history, and we won't be remembered for anything probably. And that's okay. It's just the way human life is, right? And uh, and that is good in the sense that we allow ourselves to not take ourselves too seriously. And I think that brings joy and benefit. But at the same time, all we have is the hours and minutes of our life. And so by definition, that's extremely precious because it's all we have and we can't make more of it. And to accomplish anything with the hours and minutes that we've been given on this earth we have to take our life extremely seriously and we have to be very, very dedicated and committed to whatever it is we're doing. Otherwise we won't really have anything here. This, this journey that we're on will have no meaning even for us. Mm -hmm. And so finding this balance of opposites or opposing ideas, which are both true, right there on the one hand, you're not going to do anything that matters. So don't take yourself too seriously. On the other hand, everything you do matters because it's all you actually have uh somehow you got to find a balance there and there's so many examples of this duality that i see in the world and um it's almost endless actually
1: well i love this idea of the tension that they're both right and yet you're in the middle of trying to also reconcile what's your priority and where you know, where do you want to place your energy? And also, um, I love this idea too, of that the time is so precious, right? Um, some people don't even value their time, right? They don't even see it as an asset. They just see it as part of this bigger continuum. And, yeah. and I think even just you taking the time and space to put these ideas down is such a gift. Because I love how there's just, you're unlocking little messages, little things that you've sort of discovered about your own journey. Um, And just getting to the title, Greatness is a Choice, um, that is such an empowering title, right? It is a choice to fulfill your full potential. It's not a right, like not everybody has that. So, I mean, I I love that as just also a a call to want to read your book.
0: I think, Kirby, that the title is extremely powerful, and I actually can't take credit for it. Uh, Some of the folks at Wiley picked it up out of after reading my book. I had a different title, and they they searched for a title they liked out of the chapters in my book, and they came up with it, and I liked it very much. And, of course, I've come to really like it a lot. And the, the idea of greatness is such a misunderstood concept anyway, and I think in today's world, so many people just don't put out the effort don't take pride in their work and i think that in my childhood um i saw much more pride in effort than i see in the world today and it's it makes me sad because i think it's only through pride in work and bringing some degree of greatness your best greatness to every endeavor brings personal fulfillment to you and you know i i when people think of greatness today, they think of basketball or sports stars or movie stars or, uh, whatever it is they think of, but they don't necessarily think of the, what I'll call the average person. And, and that's really what I want to dispossess people of that notion. I think that, um, greatness exists potentially in every person and in every single endeavor. Right. And I think, for example, when two people meet just for a cup of coffee, You can choose to sit there and be fully engaged with the person and really listen and really be present. And that's bringing your greatness. Or you could be distracted by your phone uh, or looking over the shoulder of that person to see who else is in the coffee shop or walking in and not be attentive and giving your full self to that moment and that interaction. And that's just a simple example. But I think, and then in the coffee shop, You know, you could have the barista make you the best coffee that you've ever had or a memorable coffee. And that person has contributed mightily to your moment by by investing his or her greatness in that coffee, as opposed to mailing it in and just just doing an average job. And I one of the uh, one of the observations I have is that greatness elevates when we encounter greatness we walk away from that encounter elevated and that elevated spirit that we now have the moment after we've encountered encountered greatness then reverberates in all of our interactions for a while you know and so the ripple effect of someone making a great coffee or a great hamburger or bringing their attentive self to a meeting the ripple effect's pretty powerful you know and i think we underestimate how big of a reach and an influence we can have in a positive way by just trying our best and bringing our best self.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, we are in a very noisy environment today, right? We have phones and devices, we have news, we have media, we have political discord, we have geopolitical discord. Um, And so to find the quietness, to be attentive, to, to really, hone in and figure out what do I need to bring to this meeting, this experience, this level up opportunity. It's not something that just happens. It's intentional. Um, and I love that you bring this out in your book, because I think it's a message that quite honestly, it's kind of gotten lost.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, you mentioned a little bit about my background and I guess my fame, if you will, so far comes from my having created the commercial mortgage-backed securities market. And I did it in the early 1990s when commercial real estate was abandoned entirely by all previous lenders. And so it was an industry dependent upon debt financing and debt refinancing because all the loans mature every three to five years and without debt capital, the industry, no matter how successful and wealthy or powerful a owner of property might be, if they can't refinance their loan, no matter how conservatively underwritten the loan was, they're going to lose the property. And so it was an industry facing widespread foreclosure and bankruptcy with no hope in sight. And I guess I'm I'm still famous, not only because I created some really interesting creative um, financial structuring and I brought uh, markets together that had never been before brought together the capital markets and the bond market and real estate, but really because I saved a lot of people uh, and, and I think that then I did it with a happy face, right. And I didn't, I didn't gouge people, you know, I treated people really respectfully and I aimed for win-wins. And so, you know, here I am, and I was a very young man at the time. I was only in my 30s, early 30s, actually. And here I am, you know, roughly 30 years later, still have the halo effect of having done what I did back 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. And I'm proud of the fact that I am still well regarded and well known from something from so long. And I think part of it is because I did it the right way. And part of it was because I did something very special, which was I filled a void. And I learned from that experience that um, in the world the worlds I come from, and I suspect it's true for most worlds, but but in the worlds I come from, financial world primarily, there's so much me too, right? There's so much um capacity in the system, right? there's and there's very little differentiation. Theres very little um effort to bring unique value or to fill voids and I think that filling voids is really the highest level of contribution and I I was able to I was I was fortunate in the early 90s to operate in a moment where there was a historic void in the real estate world in the U.S. and fortunate to have had the right exact right background and pedigree to be the person who with a lot of hard work could fill that void. And so I did that. I actually, I think, you know, you mentioned this this is why I kind of went down this rabbit hole. My book is aiming to fill voids again, right? I think that's really what it's about. It's about looking at the world and saying, well, what messages uh, need to be heard and are not being heard? What messages that were perhaps commonplace in uh, in my earlier life that have been lost by the world in the last 20 or 30 years and, and need to be reheard and retold. And so my book's as much about filling voids as it is about anything else.
1: Well, it's been a true delight and pleasure to talk to you today. It's so inspiring. And I love that you shared your sort of early success and how how you made that success happen. Honestly, it was probably the pre chapter, the prequel, right, to this book, because, you know, we all have choices that we can make about how we want to show up, how we want to be great, what we want to do in this world. And God knows we need a lot of greatness today to inspire folks to make a difference, to be champions for positive change, um, to start stemming the hate and the violence. Um, That has really become quite endemic. And I think your book really is a call to action for those looking for something to inspire them, something to bring conversations around the table, um, something to lighten people's hearts and minds to say that there's possibly some fresh thinking here that can help inspire me to, to be the best that we can be. Ethan, tell us a little bit more about best ways to find your book, find where you're speaking. I know you're doing a tremendous amount of speaking um, all around the world. So tell us more about readers and uh, listeners. Well,
0: yeah. the book, the book is available where books are available. So online, most people today buy their books online, Amazon, of course, and uh, borders and other online Walmart has it. It's on, it's available online where people buy books online. Yeah. The audio version of the book uh I just taped yesterday. And so today I'm going to uh, do the final edit of it. I'm going into the studio after this and it'll be available pretty soon. Um, I'm going to say weeks, certainly by the end of the month. And then there's the ebook version, which is also available online right now. Um, As far as, you know, I'm very, very passionate and this book really is a passion uh, play for me. And so I'm doing a lot of speaking around the book. I really love to speak to people and bring people, as you say, together, because I think that's what's needed in the world today. I think it's it's fun for me. It's enjoyable for me, and it counteracts a lot of the doom and gloom that we're just we're overwhelmed with in today's world. So I rarely say no to an invitation to come speak to people. Sometimes it's a small group. Sometimes it's a very large group but I have fun doing it. And so I would invite your listeners to, if they are reading the book and hearing me speak, and they're interested in having me come speak for their company or for something, I'm pretty open to that kind of stuff. Uh, I do, I do travel a lot and fortunately my kids are grown and I have the ability to go with my wife and travel and we enjoy it. So I do travel quite a bit, probably a solid 50% of the time. And, uh, I have upcoming um engagements in in the next weeks for example in Miami uh in New York in Washington and in Baltimore uh before Thanksgiving and so I'll be in those places if anybody cares and you know there's public things going on in Baltimore and Washington uh New York too the Miami ones are more closed uh, but uh, i'm all i'm all over the place and available so i i i as i say i enjoy this it's fun for me
1: well you got incredible folks to endorse your books i don't know if you want to just drop a few names but you obviously have a rich past with a lot of interesting people that you've worked with so maybe share with the listeners a little bit about who's endorse- yeah
0: well my my forward for my book was written by uh dr j julius Irving. Uh, <laughs> julius and i have been friends for 27 years almost 28 years and he's the godfather of my 20 year old daughter and we've been very very close friends i I love him and i think he loves me and he was kind enough to write the foreword for the book and bring his renown to the book right i'm a person who has some degree of renown in my field but not in the public domain so having julius kind of on the cover was a very kind gesture for him and uh, very much appreciated and I think you know I guess I'm proud of the diversity that I have in my life you know in in this day and age there's a lot of questions around and desires around diversity and I love diversity I have a very diverse family my wife is from South America I have two adopted kids in addition to three biological and my one is from Africa and one is from South America and so our house is our family is very diverse, um, and my my friends over the course of my life is also reflective of my enjoyment of a very diverse walkabout. And I think that diversity and the perspectives gained from that diverse walkabout has been foundational to enable me to write the book the way I wrote it and and have the ideas and insights that I have. I think that it's part part of what's made you know was made perhaps my walkabout a little bit of a unique one i I also have um tony robbins on the cover of the book writing the kind of lead endorsement or testimonial and i i really admire tony he's a self-made man he's probably the best teacher i've ever encountered in my life uh i got to know him uh he was a friend of my wife's oddly enough and uh, we met and became very good friends and he was the first investor in my last find actually. And so Tony, uh, tremendous admiration for him and his, his vote of confidence on this book obviously is extremely meaningful and powerful for me, given my high regard for his intellect and, and his understanding of how to communicate. Uh, and then on the back of the book, I have um, equally interesting, diverse people. i um, steve cohen who's a legendary figure on wall street and owns the new york mets uh who's despite his incredible success and wealth one of the sweetest and most down to earth human beings i've ever met in my life and just a lovable teddy bear you know which is kind of not what people who don't know him might think about him but uh just one of the one of the world's great guys um ordinary guy you know who i i love people who who are successful but have not let it change who they are. And I always aspire to be that way myself with whatever success that I ever get. And uh, he he embodies that quite well. Um Ozzie Osborne and Black Sabbath were my my favorite bands and remain my favorite band to this day. And uh Sharon Osborne, who I've come to know, uh and Ozzy, but Sharon uh wrote a testimonial for the book, which is particularly meaningful given my you know lifetime affection for the osborns and black sabbath. Yeah. And um and then the other band that was formative or important to me as a child was Twisted Sister. And I grew up going to see them live in clubs in New York when I was in my teens and I became oddly enough friends with the lead guitarist and uh, founder of Twisted Sister and he wrote a nice testimonial for my book as well. So um When I was on Wall Street, and there's a whole chapter on music in my book, and how important music is to me, and I think in the world, right? I I love music. It's extremely important. And so the music connections for me are very valuable.
1: Well, thank you so much for being on the Tamman Learning Podcast today. You've been just a delight to speak with, and so much sharing, and such a great, wonderful resource and book that you've shared with us today. I hope everyone will go grab their copy. Um, give it to a loved one for an anniversary or birthday or a holiday like kwanzaa you know we have all these great holidays coming up with christmas and and so forth so it's just delightful to have you and congratulations to all your continued success and thanks so much again for being here with us
0: oh i really really appreciate you having me thank you corby have a great day
1: you too you too